0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.LeadLagReport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guy.
1: My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me, our special guest for the hour, Joseph Wang. Joseph, I just want to make sure, I assume you can hear me okay.
2: Yeah, I can hear you. First of all, thanks so much for inviting me, Michael.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, this will be a a good conversation. I was just reviewing some of your recent podcasts. For those who are not familiar with who you are, your background, talk through to the audience what you've done and uh, your
2: experience
1: briefly at the Fed.
2: Sure, so I was recently a trader on the open market desk at the Fed. So what I did there was basically carry out Fed trades. So, for example, trading repo, but also studying the financial system. So I was there during the time of QE's, QT and QE. So um, basically looking at banks, talking with market participants, looking at all the confidential data the Fed has and figuring out how the financial system works and how QT would affect banks and the financial markets.
1: Okay. Now, one of the things that I think is perhaps underappreciated is that the Fed is a complex beast. Everyone always thinks about the Federal Reserve in terms of interest rates and as, as if that's the only thing that the Fed really does while everything else gets kind of buried underneath. Talk through to the audience that, that complexity of the Fed and, and how the Fed touches much more than the cost of capital.
2: So the Fed is actually a ginormous – organization. So you have the Board of Governors in D.C. That's where all the power resides. But you also have a lot of reserve banks. And they touch upon not just interest rates, but also regulating the banking system. And that's actually super important because banks create money, they make loans. And so having that regulatory valve gives the Fed a lot of insight into what's going on into financial and real economies. It's Banks is where that intersects. And it also Gives some power in shaping how things, how capital is allocated. For example, in the past, there's been a lot of talk about greening the financial system. Now, the Fed would have some power to be able to shape whether or not banks can make loans to certain industries, for example. The part of the Fed that I'm most familiar with has to do with how it interfaces with the financial markets. Now, many of you may not know, but the Fed is, actually has a very large trading desk centered in New York City in an office in Chicago. And the Fed is basically always monitoring what's happening in the markets, it's, it itself is obviously is a large market participant through its QE operations, repo operations, and FX swaps. But the Fed actually is uh, well receives dealer research from basically all the major dealers. We read that. We talk to dealers daily. Talk to hedge funds. Talk to banks. Talk to GSEs, money market funds, and a whole gamut of people to try to figure out what the market is thinking, and inform take that information and inform market, uh, inform the FOMC. And so that's basically what I would be doing.
1: Okay, so, so and I've heard you talk about this before, that you believe that there is a, a struggle within the Federal Reserve as to what to do, right? So I think a lot of people speaking about sort of myth-busting or changing narratives, a lot of people seem to think the Fed is one person, which is Powell. But I want you to talk through what you suspect may be happening behind closed doors in terms of how different Fed governors, how different analysts are looking at the current macro backdrop and maybe have quite a bit of variability in their views on what to do about it.
2: So the Fed always tries to put out a united front. And many people have written uh, books about this, people who work at high levels in the Fed. But there's a tremendous amount of lobbying that goes on internally within the Fed and when they make a decision. So they always want to put on a united front. This is the same for the ECB or anything like that. But if you look at, let's say, past meeting modes, you know that there's often dissent, but that's often papered over. The most important people in the Fed, no, it is it is not just Jerome Powell, but a lot of it is him, him and the two vice chairs, which is one of which is the president of the New York Fed. At the moment, that's Williams and also soon be uh, Vice Chair Brainerd. So these three people, they're called the Troika in the Fed and they have the most sway. Now, even if there are many other people who disagree with them, they basically what they say. Carries the day. Now, to, to your broadly, to your point more broadly about how the Fed makes decisions, I, I think it's something that 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 I've become to come to see is that the Fed is actually much more politicized than it has in the past, as everything else in in our nation is. If you look at, for example, public donation data when it comes to political parties, you'll note know that the Fed, maybe not surprisingly, being government agency, is actually a very blue agency, and so. The talking points that come from, let's say, the administration oftentimes filter into the Fed. And in many ways, personnel is policy. So when you have decisions, let's say, what to do about whether or not inflation is transitory, and then you have a lot of people of a certain political party wanting to pass very large fiscal spending bills that they think are important, and then tell everyone that inflation is transitory so they can do that, those talking points get filtered into the Fed and they basically show up in policy. Now, even if at the top maybe people don't necessarily hold that view that filters in indirectly through staff reports and the amount of information they get held and so that i think has a direct impact on policy and that might be probably one of the reasons why we have this very strong i think policy error the past year where inflation is very high and until recently rates were at zero and qe was ongoing it's that political aspect that filters into how people shape it because fundamentally macro it's not really a real science there's no reality to it there's a very strong i guess subjective factor and that is easily manipulated by what you see on tv and what your political beliefs are
1: so i haven't actually heard that before although i think subconsciously most people probably may believe that you know they may be more blue in your words and that kind of goes to this this point that you mentioned that the, one of the things the Fed can do is direct loans to certain industries. Now, I've had a number of different thought leaders on these spaces who have made the argument that one of the reasons we're in somewhat of an energy crisis here is not just Russia, Ukraine, but underinvestment in the space because of an ESG mandate that various government players would, would push through. Talk through how actually that works in practice, meaning if you have a, a, a particular bill that's going to be passed or you have a particular industry that you want to go after, what is it that the Fed actually
2: what, – what does the Fed actually do with that information? What, how do they actually act on that? So I, I don't believe there's any legislation that penalizes at the moment. It could happen from the – let's say if you're not so much – if you're a bank that has its own internal values or if you're like a large capital markets investor like a hedge fund or a private fund and you have your ESG values – but strictly from the regulatory side, what could happen if they wanted to do something like this is to have some kind of surcharge for loans to loans that affect industries that are, you know, not ESG friendly. And that charge could be end up costing a bank more capital, making it more expensive for them to make. And if that's the case, then that would be discourage banks from making loans of that of that kind, basically making it more expensive for them to do it. And you could think of it as if you're part of that camp as uh, forcing certain parts of the market to internalize the externalities that uh, a polluting industry would cause, but so that's one way to do this. And I don't know if that's how they would do it. The thing is, it seems that because at the moment the political powers in the Fed don't are not in that direction. Maybe if Brainerd was governor was chair one day, that would be the case. But uh, it doesn't seem like that's that's how they're acting right now. Although they're making noises and they have. A commentary on greening the financial system and if you see across the pond and europe they're thinking about this so it does seem to be a trend just just not right away here
1: yeah i, I just think that that's remarkable because it shows you how much nudging influence the fed has on shaping the economy right not just in terms of the blunt tool of the cost of capital but then making that cost of capital more expensive to th- suit certain narratives
2: right so this is actually a, a common theme throughout not just so looking aside let's see if you look at Japan or Southeast Asia during the during the 90s Southeast Asia during the 90s and in Japan even earlier what they would often do is they would basically ask the central bank would ask the commercial banks to make loans to certain target industries and by that way basically have an industrial policy and funnel loans and capital to promote the growth of them of these industries so it is it, it's a very common lever for a central government to exert control in industry through the central bank into the commercial banks and allowing the commercial banks to give money to certain industries. Now, traditionally, the U.S. has not been like that. I think if you step back, it seems like the U.S. seems to be moving towards more and more of a command and control economy. So, but to be clear, that's not necessarily bad, depending on whether or not the policymakers are good. In Southeast Asia, in Japan, they were the policymakers for a period, at least, were were funneling capital to growth industries that did end up having good outcomes for their economy but the 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 trend is that policymakers tend to not make good decisions
1: we'll be back after a quick break hello listeners michael gayet here from lead lag live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the lead lag report our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before and guess what We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. That's not a controversial (laughs) statement in general. Okay, okay, now, now, hold on. Now, now, okay, again, I want to keep going... Yeah, you know, focusing on on the Fed, obviously, because that's in a different way, I think, than other podcasts and other conversations. But I want to talk about the the idea that the Fed can control and command the economy in the sense that I remember, and you, you may have come across this study, but I remember something like 10, 15 years ago. It was, it was a long time ago. It just stuck with me. I saw a headline and the headline was, Fed, through its own research, discovers that its ability to forecast the future is no different than Wall Street. When Wall Street's ability to predict uh, the future is, is pretty bad. So in other words, the point is that the Fed, just like everybody else, has the same problem everybody has, which is that nobody can predict tomorrow. Talk about if you think that over the last several years, decades, the Fed's ability to control the future has diminished because of the zero bound, because of leverage being as high as it is. And if maybe it's
2: diminished, if that explains some of what we're seeing this year. So, Michael, I think you make a really good point. The Fed has a really bad track record for forecasting, and that's true for everyone. If you look at declassified Fed documents, let's say post-2008, the 2008, post-GFC, they were always talking about, you know, Fed funds is going to be at 4% in, the th- in, in three or four years. And they would forecast that basically every year for, for a number of years. And, you know, even today in 2022, we're not anywhere close to that. So economic forecasting in my view, is not super useful. It's not like a real sense. And the good part is that Jay Powell, being from industry, understands this. If you remember one of the first press conferences he gave you know, early on, he understood models for, for reference only. So he has a bit more common sense than let's say if you were just a, a PhD economist from the Academy. So you raise a really good point, but I would actually add that up. So it's not just about being from the zero lower bound that the Fed has less power. But I think the bigger, bigger impact is that the federal government is just a much larger influence in the world than they have in the past. And the federal government has very has a lot of influence on, well, first of all, the federal government is immune to interest rates, right? So if you're the Fed and you want to tampen down economic activity by toggling interest rates, and well, let's say we're back 100 years ago where the federal government is very small, then it's very effective because when you – Raise interest rates in the private sector, they get squeezed a bit and maybe they dampen down activity. And if you lower interest rates, maybe the opposite happens. But if you fast forward to how the world is structured today, you have a very, very large uh, federal government. And if rates are like, let's say, 10 percent, 20 percent, they kind of don't care, right? So if the federal government sends, they just spend and they just borrow it. So when you have a large portion of the economy that is indifferent to interest rates, naturally you have less control over the economy. So that's one point. The second point is to understand that in the modern financial system, treasuries are a type of money. So if you think of what we think of as money, let's say a $100 bill, that's printed by the government, right? I can use that and I can go and buy all sorts of things. A uh, $100 in treasuries is really just money that pays interest. We can't take that treasury and go and buy dinner at Denny's or something, but I can easily liquidate it through one of the world's the most deepest capitalist markets, get some bank deposits and pay. So when the federal government is doing deficit spending, let's say 1.5 trillion a year or two of what they're doing now, what they're really doing is that they're buying physical goods and services and paying for them by printing treasuries. Now, if you have a very large entity like the federal government printing $1 or $2 trillion in treasuries every year, then and they are indifferent to interest rates, then again, you lose a lot of control over the real economy. And so I imagine even if interest rates were much higher and you had deficit spending continuing, you would still have a pretty inflationary environment. And having a large entity just indifferent to interest rates, I think, structurally weakens the influence the Federal Reserve has on the economy. And there's one one final detail is that they even don't have as much control over interest rates as they do in the past because, for example, Interest rates, let's say 10-year, 20-year, 30-years, a lot of that is due to supply and demand. So if the U.S. Treasury were to decide to lock in longer-term rates by issuing more longer-dated treasuries, then longer-dated rates would rise. So in that sense, I would think that the Fed has lower, less power than than they had before. Your point about being at zero lower bound, also extremely valid and definitely a very big problem over the past year, 10 years post-GFC between GFC and now. And we've seen central banks innovate in many ways to to counteract that from negative interest rates, forward guidance, quantitative easing. But I suspect that we're entering into a world where the zero-low bond won't be as a big of a problem because, in, in my view, we're entering into a world where inflation will be structurally higher. So we don't have to worry about that. What we'd probably have to worry about is there doesn't seem to be any mechanism to shrink deficit spending or the amount of, basically, amount of issuance that the Treasury is doing, amount of spending that Congress is doing. Yeah, I'm I'll, I'll never going to revisit it. So the way that this works, and this happened during the GFC as well, is that when the Fed wants to do something, it doesn't necessarily have the expertise in-house. During the GFC, the Fed started starting buying MBS in size, agency MBS, and it didn't have that internal expertise, and it also outsourced it. So this time around, they also they chose BlackRock and Pimco for another program as well for commercial paper, I believe. So the Fed doesn't have this internal expertise at that time to to be able to to do this on short notice. And so what they would do was they would ask someone else to help them out. And it would be, you know, it would be in a client a client relationship and with appropriate confidentiality and so forth. And BlackRock, again, very big industry leader. Has a lot of expertise in these subjects, so that's that's why they were chosen. I I think that that would probably be something internal within BlackRock's own compliance. I'm not super familiar with with how they do that, but that's definitely a concern. And you know, I mean, that I mean, it's it's always I think it's some not something the Fed likes as well, being seen as you know entangled with these large private private investment funds. But I think at the time they really had no choice. There there was no capacity for the Fed themselves to. To undertake this operation so one thing though if something like this were to persist the fed would eventually build up its own in-house expertise and that's what happened during the gfc as well eventually all mortgage operations were uh, they built up their own mortgage team they hired a bunch of people who had a lot of industry experience and they built it up internally if if the fed were to become actively involved in the bond the corporate bond markets or the say the commercial paper market then they would they would build out those capacities internally.
1: You use the term that they're, or the idea that they're losing control you know, of interest rates or, or it's been trending in that direction. But that's always a nuanced discussion because it's always a function of which interest rates, right? So uh, I've made this argument many times that you can have interest rates both rise and fall at the exact same time. It depends on where you are in the term structure, right? So yeah. I, I am curious your thoughts on, if if it really is true that the Fed can control the bond market or if it's the opposite, which is the uh, on the long end of the curve, the idea that the reality is the Fed can't really control
2: longer-term uh, interest rates. So the Fed can – so any central bank has, based, in theory, complete control of interest rates if they want it. They have a giant money printer. They can basically be like the Bank of Japan, just buy as much of that 10-year as they want. And it's done. Now, that's not the... the, So, first of all, they they do have that capacity, that capability. second is that they don't exercise it. And, I mean, so the Fed doesn't, you know, so traditionally the U.S., we are a market-driven economy, doesn't want to be seen as the, let's say, fixing interest rates in the longer-dated world. So, when the Fed wants to influence longer interest rates, what they do is they just do something a bit more blunt. They just go out and buy more... Uh, let's say longer data treasuries, and this is called quantitative easing, the goal of which is to compress the term premia, which all else equal means lower interest rates. Um, many people have different views as to whether or not that that's effective. If you see papers published by the Fed, they'll tell you, yes, quantitative easing lowers interest rates. You see papers published by the private sector, maybe not so much. I'm inclined to view that if you go out and you buy like say five trillion dollars or something, usually that pushes the price higher, thus yields lower. But again, that's not the only thing that matters sometimes when people perceive that the Fed is in the market, then they just sell treasuries. There's a risk on perception, sell treasuries and buy buy stocks. So it, it's it's hard to disentangle just just exactly what the impact is. But there is a possibility that the Fed could lose control of the yield curve going forward, since at that at the moment at this point in time it's still market determined, and we have a lot of issuance going on, we have inflation very high, and we have some plumbing plumbing reasons where it it could be that the private market is not as able to absorb all this issuance as, as it had passed. But these things are only problems because the Fed allows it. Any central bank has complete control over the interest rate curve.
1: Ah, okay. So now that brings with it a discussion around Japan. Because you can have control of it, but that doesn't mean you have control of the secondary or tertiary effects of that control on the on the primary thing, right? So yes, and and that's that's you know what you're saying is correct, right? Clearly, the Bank of Japan is is doing exactly what we're talking about, right? And the Fed is going to be more effective than any central bank in the world. Talk through sort of how you're seeing the interaction of the BOJ to what's happening in what could be a currency crisis with the yen if this continues, because. I think this is something which is a much bigger story, Amanda being the real black swan this year.
2: So, I, you know, if you look at that chart, the JPY USD, it looks like it's going parabolic. It's pulled back a little bit the past few days. It, it, it is a really big story. So that's a tremendous amount of depreciation. And like you suggested, Michael, it, it has to do with interest rate differentials. So globally, not just the U.S., but globally, even the ECB, they're, they're, they're raising rates. Everyone in the world except the BOJ. Now, naturally, bond markets throughout the world are highly correlated with each other. So if you have higher rates in the U.S., that drags off, that pushes bond bond yields higher throughout the world. And naturally, that should happen in Japan as well. But because of yield curve control, the bank of Japan basically is not allowing it. So the. And impact, maybe, Joseph,
1: sorry, maybe Joseph for the audience, for those that are in just explain exactly what yield curve control actually means in
2: practice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yield curve control basically, the central bank sets a target. So, in Japan, it's the 10 year, and that it does not want it to exceed uh, 25 basis points. And if it does, then the Bank of Japan will go out and buy infinite amounts of its bonds. It has a money printer, so that the yields can never exceed that threshold. Uh, the Bank of Japan has done it recently. The Bank of Australia also did it, this for for a period of time in a three year tenor. So the Bank of Japan is forbidding its yields to rise with the rest of the world by buying infinite amounts of JGBs whenever they get whenever the whenever the yields cross about twenty five basis points. So that. Puts pressure on its currency because people investors in theory, because they're looking at yields that are higher abroad would move their money out of yen and into into treasuries or any other higher yielding um, higher yielding bonds because bonds throughout the world are rising in yield and that 's pushing a lot of currency in to be clear this is this is part of their plan. they understand that this is what 's happening. The bank of Japan for a long time has struggled with low inflation in Japan, and it seems to me that They're perceiving this as an opportunity to being able to uh, raise their inflation by depreciating their currency. I don't think that this would be uncontrollable, though. Policymakers have tools to do this. I mean, there's always the absolute super nuclear option of having capital controls. That works. Probably won't need to do that. Just have to reevaluate the the yield curve control target a little bit to fix it. What usually happens in these scenes, though, is that because people see that there's this there's this control, this let's say this fix here, they often will try to challenge it or at least assume it's there and then lever up. then eventually one day, and like all pegs do it breaks, and then everyone who was betting on that as their core strategy, maybe massively short the yen suddenly reverses. And because there's a lot of leverage building up that that could be very disorderly. So that's probably going to happen eventually because the such a the peg is, not the yield curve controls is, is not going to be sustainable in a world where the Fed is being super aggressive. Maybe the ECB is being slightly more aggressive, and maybe inflation is structural, secular. So eventually, that that yield curve control is going to have to be revalued higher, maybe to 50 basis points or something, and that could be very disorderly, as, as you suggest, Michael. It could be like a black swan event, depending on how the market is positioned.
1: Yeah, I think the issue is that Japan also imports pretty much all of its energy oil right so, so as the yen does what it's doing it's it's actually the wrong kind of inflation presumably in that in that way of thinking about it
2: yeah yeah i mean it's i mean it's going to hurt their real incomes because uh, all that so they don't they import energy as you mentioned so higher energy prices have a mixed view on on a country like the U.S. because the U.S. produces lots of energy, so it's kind of a redistribution of money from one part of the U.S. to another part. But if you're having an energy importer like Japan, then all that money goes abroad, and people are the people inside are poor. So you will get lower growth and higher inflation, and that's that's those are basically policy choices that the the central bankers have to decide. Maybe the inflation just really is that more important to them.
1: Okay, so so we hit on quite a few subjects here i'm curious if you believe that the transmission mechanism or if you've seen research that shows that the transmission mechanism of of interest rates set by the fed has a a faster effect than what historically has been the case and the reason i'm saying that is you know we're taught from day one that there are these lags that happen with monetary policy and how it actually affects the economy but it seems like, at least in the world of financial assets and markets, things move much quicker than ever before. People would argue because of algorithms. But what are your thoughts on how quickly the Fed can can counter inflation? And where I'm really going with this is that there's this 60 Minutes interview that Ben Bernanke had done in 2009, where he was asked, you know, with all these concerns about inflation, how quickly could the Fed counter it? And he said we could do it in 15 minutes. Right? Yeah, something yeah. along those lines. Right. If you remember that 60 minutes, I, I've yep. tweeted that video before. So 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 I want you to spend a little time on talking about the Fed's perception of how quickly their actions filter into the economy and then kind of the reality on the ground, which is that maybe it takes a lot longer or it's faster than people think.
2: So the textbook central banker reply would be monetary policy acts with a long and variable lag and so forth. You know, Jay Powell was asked this once in one of his recent press conferences, and he's like, Yeah, but you know when we do something, it gets reflected in the markets immediately. So I don't know if that's right. And I I think they're both right in the sense of if you're looking at the financial economy or if you're looking at the real economy. Now, the Fed has only hiked 25 basis points. But if you look at the the two-year, the five-year, or um, short-term interest rate futures, they're basically fully priced in a fairly aggressive front-loaded Fed hike cycle. And so that is already in the market. And that is already in the bond market so if you if you had a position there that you were long bonds you you were you would have taken losses so that stuff happens it, it does kind of affect different markets differently because normally you would expect let's say the amount of carnage you've seen in the bond market you also spill into let's say the equity market but the market participants are a bit different um, although they are related so that happens instantly and i think that is probably the primary transmission mechanism where it could Quickly have an effect on the real economy now, as you noted, Michael, if you raise interest rates you know quickly it, it doesn't actually filter into the actual prices very very quickly in the real economy, like if i go to if I go to Walmart and I try to buy something Prices don't really change quickly because the Fed said that it's going to hike a lot, even though that's already in the two-year two-year bond. Or if I deposit money at a money market fund or at a bank, I don't also don't see the interest that I receive up already. So that stuff happens with a very long lag. If you're looking at deposit rates narrowly, if the Fed hiked hundred basis points, the, the typical depositor will only see a fraction of that, and also many many months afterwards. So how it feeds through to the real economy is is very slow. But the financial economy and the real economy interact through financial assets. And I think that's one way that the Fed can very quickly impact the real economy. Basically, if you take a haircut on your financial wealth, let's say risk assets go lower, bonds sell off, then you're very quickly removing money from the financial system. You're removing demand because demand is just, you know, accounts numbers in your, let's say, your Schwab account. So when you have less wealth, you spend less, and that's a very efficient way to reduce demand. Now, it affects people unevenly because people buy different financial assets and have different levels of their net worth in financial assets. But I think it, it does. You can think of it as a reverse of what Ben Bernanke was trying to do post-GFC. Post-GFC, as we famously know, there was a wealth effect portfolio rebalancing, trying to boost the stock market up because inflation was low, growth was low. So maybe if people were wealthier, they would go out and they would spend more, which would boost demand now we have too much demand inflation is very high so you're basically a quick way for the fed to do that the quickest way i think that they can would be to have a negative wealth effect and uh take away some of that quote unquote demand excess demand
1: i want to hit on that a little bit after trend trader because i think there is a massive just massive destruction of wealth because of bonds even though people seem to think that asset value versus income is different because of mental accounting, I would argue that you've had a tremendous disinflationary shock just from the way bonds themselves have behaved, which makes sense because higher yields should be (laughs) disinflationary, which we'll talk
3: about. We'll be back after a quick break.
2: So thanks for your question and and thanks for your interest in my work. So the the way that this would go for... So QT is definitely going, in my view, going to be the biggest thing that's going to happen in the markets in the coming months. And the way that this works is that so the Fed has all these bonds on their balance sheet, but they're not actually going to sell anything. Uh, Treasuries, they they won't sell. They they might sell mortgages maybe in a couple of years. And you can see that in the design of the QT program. In the QT program, so it's ninety-five billion dollars total, sixty billion for treasuries and thirty-five for agency MBS. Now, for treasuries, whenever they, so what will happen is that whenever the Fed gets repaid with their treasury holdings, they they won't reinvest the money. They'll just cancel the money, and it disappears into money happen. So they're not actually going to sell treasuries. When, however, if for example, this month only $50 billion matured, they will let uh $10, $10 billion in their short-term treasury bills roll off as well. And those are short-term, they're mature like you know a couple of times a week. So it's it's easy to fill that gap. So they're they're always going to hit that 60 billion treasury roll-off every month. The MBS though, they, they will rarely hit. MBS maturities will be about $25 billion a month for the for the foreseeable future. They have a $35 billion cap. So that's designed by the Fed to give them room to sell, let's say, $10 billion a month if they wanted to. So the treasuries, I don't think they're going to sell, but they might sell MBS BS later on. What what, what but to, to, to your point though, what happens for how this how QT affects longer dated rates? I would not watch the Fed. What I want to do is I want to watch very carefully what the U.S. Treasury is going to do. And they're going to have their quarterly refunding next week. That's what you want to watch. So you want to watch that because what QT is doing is that the the Treasury is refinancing the debt they owe to the Fed by borrowing from someone else in the private sector. So how that affects rates depends on how the Treasury is refinancing that debt. Is it going to issue, let's say, 10-year bond, or is it issue a 20-year bond or a 30-year bond, or maybe shorter-dated. Now, going forward, if it decides to issue, let's say, a bunch of longer-dated debt to, re- to refinance the debt held at the Fed, then that's going to increase the supply of duration in the market. So that could push uh, longer-dated rates higher. I think what's happening is that the market is beginning to try to price in what that extra supply of uh, Bonds in the market would do. Obviously, it's going to make bond yields go higher, but it's really hard to price something like this because the level is so high. It's in the trillions. And it's it's not easy to see, at least from my perspective, what who would buy that at, at what price. So I, I would expect the sell-off to continue. And I've written about this for the past a couple of months. When the when the yield curve was flat to inverting, I was saying that they would. We are at the cusp of a great steepening, and I think that we continue to see that.
1: So let's go to the the name of the space here, Joseph. So risk off for stocks is coming. I've I've I've, lo- I've been <laughs> anybody that's been tracking me knows, and I've been very public in saying this. I've been having a a very hard time this year because in my world, from a risk on risk off perspective, I need Treasuries to work. And what I mean by work is I need that historical convexity relative outperformance when stocks go down treasury yields drop right which is actually what we're seeing as we're speaking today as we're talking here i want to i want to i want you to lay out your thesis on how you think the environment shapes out for risk assets broadly equities more specifically and then how you think treasuries might respond to that with the caveat that it's a question of where you are on the term structure
2: yeah yeah good point so again as the saying goes don't fight the Fed, and I think the Fed has the Fed has been quite clear that they would like the risk assets to be lower. And you know, we had President Dudley, a former FRB and why President Dudley, come out a couple weeks ago and basically just says, "Yeah, we need equities to go lower." At Chair Powell's recent IMF conference, I think uh, just late last week, he was also asked by the interviewer whether or not he wants you know risk assets to be lower. He, he didn't; he dodged that question, but with some mumbo jumbo about financial conditions. But broadly speaking, when the Fed is sees inflation high. It wants to tighten financial conditions. And what are financial conditions? Well, one of, one of them is is equity prices. So they, they want the equity prices to go lower. There's no Fed put right now at the moment, or if there is, it's much, much lower than it is now. So I would say don't fight the Fed. I think risk assets will go lower. Now, about the bond market, it's a kind of a similar story too, I th- in, in my view. The Fed wants to tighten financial conditions. It's doing two things. One is that it's raising front short end rates aggressively. So you have, let's say, I think it's two two point five percent priced in, but by the end of this year and going higher to three percent next year. So that's that's basically forcing losses on bondholders, right? That's with fully within the Fed's power to do, and they've done it. And in the longer dated end, they're trying to do the same thing. They've already unveiled what I'd say the Fed has described as well. Mr. Brainer described as, as aggressive QT. So um, it's going to be rapid, $95 billion a month. And I think that's going to put upward pressure on, on longer-data treasuries. So I, I think there's not a lot of places to hide in, in the financial asset world. That, I think that negative correlation, it's working well today, I mean, very well. You can see the 10 years down a lot. But uh, going forward, I, I think it's going to be harder and harder to do. So the Fed doesn't have direct control on equity markets, but it does have direct control on a lot of the front-end median demand and indirect control on the longer-dated. And that's going to put pressure on bonds, which mechanically puts pressure on on um, stock prices through, like say, risk parity strategies who have to uh, sell stocks to rebalance because of their bond portfolio losses. Places to hide, there's probably not a lot. I think that there seems to be a potentially a secular bull market in things like energy. So that's been performing very well. But if you're in this world where kind of financial assets are all very, very elevated in price, and, and the Fed wants them to be lower, there's, I, I think there's not a lot of places to hide unless you wanted to. Okay, if, you, if your mandate permits to to sell, sell short. I think one of the big changes going forward is that there's probably going to be less buying from 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 some sovereigns, and I, it has to do with the way that sovereign managers manage their their, their money. So. The sovereign reserve managers are super, super risk adverse. They don't really care about making a return. They just want to have make sure that they don't take any losses. Uh, believe it or not, the, the U.S. actually also has a foreign currency port portfolio. I think it's about 40 billion in uh, yen and uh, euros. So the way that the us the fed does it is they just they just you know leave it at deposit at a central bank or roll in uh, let's say jgbs or a french oats or something like that so they don't really care about losing money they just need it to be in super secure assets now what happened with so post russian sanctions where the us and its allies confiscated the the reserves of the russian central bank th- there's going to be some concern that these dollar assets that we hold aren't really going to be risk free and for for a big country like let's say China, that's kind of an existential risk because they have a tremendous amount of dollar-denominated assets, and I think that's going to have to force them to diversify a bit. Uh, so they're still going to hold a lot of dollars, but uh, I, I don't I don't see them as being an increasingly marginal buyer. They, they're going to have to hold their their central bank reserves in in something else simply because one day it might dollar the, the dollars that they think they have might not be there when they really really need it. And that's just a completely unacceptable existential risk for any foreign reserve manager. I think the U.S. and the, their allies just did a, just did tremendous psychological damage to, to, to the dollar for that. And maybe the moves will be marginal, but it, I think I think over time you're going to see some more diversification for these sovereign actors out, out of dollars into other things. So I wouldn't count on them being major buyers going forward. The other foreign buyers are our private sector buyers. And they they have slightly different incentive structures so for them it's a, say your a private pension fund or something like that you're, you're probably not going to get your money confiscated but the way that they work is that when they buy dollar assets they have to hedge them hedge the currency risk through FX swaps and the price for that is linked to US dollar money markets so a three month live work basically so if you have a relatively flat yield curve, even though it looks like the ten-year di- differential in 10 yields between, let's say, the U.S. and Europe or U.S. and Japan seems large, you're going to have, to, a foreign investor is going to have to pay a lot to hedge the FX currency risk. And so it's not going to be super attractive for them. So going forward, until the curve steepens even more, I, I don't see private foreign investors being large marginal buyers either.
1: Maybe I'll ask the question since he sent me a direct message on So, the question around sort of the, the Fed call instead of the, the Fed put. And what I'm going to assume was a bearish take on his view that in Q2, what are the risks of some form of yield curve control or some form of emergency QE? Um, I will say before you answer that, Joseph, that it is not impossible to see the Fed do a complete about face very quickly. And a good example of that is what happened in 1987 where – The federal reserve was hiking rates uh, all the way basically up until the crash of 87 and then greenspan having just gotten the jobs had to start lowering rates so talk through sort of the risks of the market or rather the the fed maybe completely changing its stance if the market
2: tells them to based on what could be a pretty big decline some believe might be coming yeah i think it's a classic classic fed move you you hike until the market breaks and then you do emergency uh, emergency easing so that's that's how I see this probably would play out eventually. So I think of the greatest risk going forward as just the just the bond market. So I think of bond market pricing as mostly determined by supply and demand. And as I've noted, just you know in this conversation that we have a tremendous amount of supply of bonds coming to the market, so both from new issuance and also from Q t. So the private sector, well, the non-fed sector is going to have to digest about, say two trillion a year for the next three years, that's a tremendous amount. At the same time, uh, as was earlier mentioned, you know, maybe the foreign official sector is not going to be there. Maybe the foreign private sector is not going to be there. And for the past two years, the marginal buyer of treasuries, the banks have also stated that, you know, they're they're not going to be doing that because they are they're going to make more private loans because there's more loan demand. So you're you're going into a world where you have a tremendous amount of supply, less demand, and so I think there's there's some possibility, and plus, of course, high inflation, if you're a fundamentally oriented investor. So there's there's some possibility that we hit an air pocket in Treasuries that could cause a spike, like repo rates spiked in, in 2019. And if that happens, I think there could be a very disorderly sell-off in all financial assets, simply because Treasuries are the bedrock of the financial system, and the Fed would not sit buy to let that happen. They will have to come in and intervene. And if they intervene at that time, and keep in mind that the treasury market only grows larger and larger because deficits are forever, it seems, they're probably going to have to operate their monetary policy in a different way. And that could involve a yield curve control, like what the Bank of Japan is doing. So there's actually a couple ways to think about why. So in addition to, to what I mentioned, these supply and demand dynamics, there are also some plumbing reasons why I think that the treasury market is more fragile than than it appears to be. Now, the treasury market is the deepest, most liquid market in the world, but that liquidity really hasn't scaled as much as the issuance size over the over the past two decades. So if you look back, let's say uh, 20 years ago, you had about $7 trillion in treasuries outstanding, and you had $400 billion a day in cash treasury volumes. You fast forward today, you have about $23 trillion in treasuries outstanding, but the cash treasury market is about, I think, six hundred billion, six 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 fifty billion dollars a day. So you can see that the amount of treasuries outstanding has grown much faster than the than the liquidity available. So the stadium has gotten bigger, but the exits just basically haven't stayed the same. So that's kind of a recipe for disaster if if we get into a situation where, you know, supply keeps coming and people suddenly have to start selling. And yeah, there's also. An issue of balance sheets capacity for let's say people who depend on repo financing might not be able to get the repo financing they need because the pipes that bring that repo financing are, are not as wide as they were pre GFC because of regulation. So that that's what I think is is a, a black swan, potential black swan in the coming quarters, which would which would, as the question suggests, force emergency one eighty in their in the stance of monetary policy.
1: Well, which goes back to the point that for all these forecasts around what the Fed's going to do and the Fed's own forecasts, it just doesn't matter <laughs> at the end of the day because nobody nobody really knows what can, what comes tomorrow, and there's plenty of examples in history like that. Now, one thing I want you to explain, Joseph, for the audience here is – because I heard this quite a bit over the years – is this narrative that the, the treasury market has, has has had this constant bid for a long time because there's institutional mandates that say that they have to hold treasuries, right? that treasuries have to be the collateral – Of choice. Explain to the audience how that ends up happening in terms of the plumbing when you're dealing with banks and, you know, this is partially hitting on reverse repos and things like that. But I want you to kind of talk through that because the other side might be that, well, if if governments and if the Fed is is fast enough, maybe they can simply make more of those mandates to keep that bid even larger than before, even though it's artificially legally driven. That's a, that's
2: a that's a really good point, point. and they have been doing something like that, and they could up that up those regulations. So, if you if you are like a bank or asset manager or anything like anyone a company, if you're you know an individual, you always have to keep some liquidity on hand, right? If you are a retail person, you have like a checking account that you have some some money in that you that you use for your day to day cash needs. Now, pre GFC, the way that the the banking system worked. Was that they would they would keep their Rene day cash as deposits at other banks. This is um, uh, well, this was basically the federal funds market. So, if you're a, if you're a giant bank, you had some, let's say, a billion dollars in liquidity. Okay, what would you do? You would basically deposit that at another bank. Technically, you would lend them that billion dollars, and that would be a federal funds transaction. So, the banking system held liquidity within itself and as long as there's no counterparty risk that worked perfectly so if bank a deposited money at bank b next day they needed the money back that they would get it back not a problem but during the gfc something fundamental changed in that assumption and that was that credit risk re-emerged so lehman went under so all the people who deposited money deposited their liquidity at Lehman, suddenly did not get access to it, right? And if they can't get access to it, but maybe the payments that they owe other people also they can't make. And so all that liquidity that the banking sector thought existed disappeared because of counterparty risk. And this was not just true in the banks, but this was true, uh, for example, for many other private investors as well. Private, Some private investors held AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities, thinking that they were safe and liquid assets. And then they turned out to be not safe and liquid assets. And so that, of course, if, you're, if you are if you a private investor who needed liquidity to the redemptions of your investors, you would not be able to make them. So the decision was made post-GFC that from henceforth, one, all these important financial actors like banks had to hold more liquidity. And two, that what could qualify as liquidity had to be sovereign assets. So you could not, let's say, hold a billion dollars on deposit at another bank as your safe liquid assets, because the bank could go under like it did uh, during the GFC, you could only hold safe assets in the form of treasuries or deposits at the Fed. So these two regulations increased the demand of treasuries for the banking system uh, pretty pretty sizably. But similar regulations were also rolled out to um, let's say uh, government sponsored enterprises like let's say uh, federal home loan banks and Fannie Mae and so forth. And as I understand, uh, in the more, let's say, the, the, the insurance industry also has, has to take in mind something similar. So this basically manufactured a lot of demand for treasuries. But if you look at the way that the, uh, if you look at our federal deficit, it, it only goes higher. So um, if you have infinite supply of something, the, you eventually you run out of buyers. Some things that you could do to to change that would be um, to, make it, to make it easier for banks to hold uh, treasuries without it affecting their capital. So what this means is that they would cut exempt treasuries from the leverage ratio, and that would basically instantly create infinite demand for for treasuries. Um, I don't think they would do that unless they really have to, but um, I think that would be the nuclear option that could solve this problem.
1: And maybe for the uh, last three minutes here, we'll have one final audience. Uh, And again, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow uh, Joseph and check out uh, his website as well. Uh, Abdul, go ahead
3: and unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me, Michael. And I just had a question that.
2: So I think, so I think the, that that's a really good point. Obviously, the Fed can't print more oil have a negative supply shock. The Fed has less tools to do that. But I think part of, I think part of what's happening in in the U.S. at least, and not so for the eurozone, but there is also a very strong demand component for for inflation as well. I think the easy way to see this, and Jason Furman has a very good article on this, is to see that you know the real growth in the US is is high, right? So if you have real growth high, it just can't be completely a negative supply shock, which would imply lower real growth. And we actually have stronger demand as well. And it's not hard to see why. Uh, well, the federal government, tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, fiscal spending during the pandemic. and So that, that kind of goosed up demand a bit. So the Fed may, cannot, I guess fix those supply shocks, but they can do something to affect aggregate demand. And if if you look at so, what Chair Powell points to a lot is that he points to let's say the job market, which is in his view on fire. People have offers, wages keep going higher. And I think that's a pretty pretty clear sign of strong demand. So, if you could temper that a bit, you know, maybe instead of giving ten job offers, maybe just get two, that, that has some impact on inflation. Um, it's going to be, of course, hard to do that because the economy is complicated, and you know, rates is a blunt tool. But I think there is a demand component that they can that they can moderate a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly both. It's just it's hard to know what the which which you give higher weight to, right? Because exactly, again, it's a very it's a very complex system, and you know, the 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 Fed at least I think has to be able to provide some cover for themselves by saying we tried
2: for sure
1: for sure right. no for sure that's me right so, so we're at the end of the hour here uh, again everybody that's here please make sure you follow joseph uh, this was a, a
3: phenomenal uh, conversation joseph the content in this program is for informational purposes only you should not construe any information or other material as investment financial tax or other advice The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.